Hey there. We can walk down the street if it'd be better. Yeah, yeah, it might, it might help. Probably like behind the uh, building maybe possible. I'm standing in the parking lot of the 10th Avenue Deli in the Birmingham neighborhood of Kingston with Solomon Crenshaw. This is the spot where Benita Carter was killed by police officer George Sands in 1979, where Crenshaw, as an intern working for the Birmingham News, found himself the next day as things went to hell. Solomon's a friend of mine, a colleague for 30 years, and we're walking the grounds with producer Alexander Ritchie, retracing the last minutes of Benita Carter's life. I think we're good to go here. It all started with Buster Pickett driving to the gas pumps when the store was known as Jerry's, as gas shortages hit and filling stations began to institute pay-in-advance policies. This is Crenshaw talking about 20-year-old Benita and why her death became something more. If you know the story, he pulls up on Friday night to buy gasoline. We've been right here. We've been right over here, yes. And he is asked or told that he has to pay for gasoline before he pumps. So he pulls up, they say pay in advance, and he takes it personally because he thinks it's an affront to him. Very much so. And he goes home, gets a gun, comes back, and starts shooting into the store. And ultimately, the people in the store call the police. Sirens can be heard in the distance. The fellow understands that they are coming for him, so he hightails it down the street. Gets about oh, half a block away, thereabouts, I'm not quite sure. And he realizes, remembers, that he left his car. So unwilling to come back, obviously afraid that he'd be apprehended, he yells back for someone to bring him his car. And she said, if I don't take it, they're going to tow it. And so she got in the car and she started to drive away, and we're standing. 20 feet from a memorial sign for her. Let's mm -hmm. walk over there. Sure. Yeah. So, so she pulls this way while police officer George Sands and his partner pull up 16 seconds after the call goes out, which was just happenstance, really. He jumps out. The man runs out of the store and says, he's in the car, pointing to Benita Carter, which is exactly where we're standing right now. Mm -hmm. Some of the but Miss Carter's friends are, are yelling, saying, no, it's a girl in the car, it's a girl in the car, it's a girl in the car. But right there where that yellow cigarette pack is or whatever it is, George Sands pulls out his gun and points it at the car. And according to his testimony, he said he saw her jump up in the, saw somebody jump up in the seat. And so he fired a volley of shots into her. She died right where we're standing. I suppose in a weak defense of, of the officer, he would not have known what to think. Uh, now, to what degree he dismissed the word of blacks who were in the neighborhood, I don't know. To what degree he gave extra credence to the word of store owners, I don't know. And that that's the way it always happens. Yeah. History continues to repeat itself to some degree even today. If we were in a time now that was without cell phone videos, some number of more recent events would be in question. The authority said this, that's how it is, because, well, they're the authority.
I'm John Archibald. And I'm Roy S. Johnson. This is Unjustifiable, the story of young Benita Carter and how her death and the outrage that followed changed the city and perhaps gives us a roadmap for a better future. It was the third day of summer in 1979, already hot in Birmingham on that Saturday morning when Crenshaw arrived at Jerry's. The temperature would roll into the 90s, but it was hot in a lot of ways. Crenshaw was just a college student, a rising senior at Birmingham Southern College, a small liberal arts school across town from where he stood on that hot morning. He was a young black man, a native of the city, the son of a well-known preacher, He had just begun his internship at the Afternoon Daily that had not always been, shall we say, progressive on issues of race. He'd been out interviewing a pediatric dentist for another story and came into the office to check on photos he had assigned. By chance, he ran into an editor, Garland Reeves, who was looking for a body. Or maybe it wasn't by chance. Maybe Crenshaw was exactly where he was supposed to be on that hot Saturday morning in Birmingham. Hot in so many ways. I came out here and was frankly amazed by what I had seen. I I get here and you've got what is easily described as a riot. What struck Crenshaw as he returned again and again to the neighborhood white people feared was the growing crowd, the escalating anger. It was different from other protests he'd seen, very different. This was largely anger, perhaps an overused term, but very eloquent here. The last straw. This was clearly the last straw because Benita Carter was not the first, unfortunately would not be the last person of color to be killed by a white police officer. But this was a circumstance where people simply said, enough. Sometimes it's hard, it's hard to stay cool. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to stay cool. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to stay cool. Enough. Unrest that began the night of the shooting swelled through that day and that early summer, growing larger as the weeks passed, as the community demanded the firing of George Sands an officer who had racked up 14 citizen complaints between 1973 and 79, including four from black men who said they were beaten during arrests. The protests drew throngs from inside and outside the city. Joseph Lowry, national president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, marched alongside the local chapter president, Reverend Abraham Woods. The Ku Klux Klan waged counter-protests. Grand Dragon Don Black was in Birmingham. He would run for mayor that year and the Revolutionary Communist Party USA passed out leaflets urging black people to tear the blood-soaked capitalist system down and burn its remains with the inferno of people's rage. T.K. Thorne, now an author and a retired police captain, was a rookie cop when Benita Carter was killed. After the shooting, she was called in to stand guard in front of Jerry's, called in again to go undercover and investigate reports of white people being assaulted and violent KKK insurgency in the area. 
Thorn was just 22 years old, all of five foot three and 120 pounds at the most. She found herself wide-eyed in a line of officers trying to hold back an angry crowd. And I had a riot helmet on, which pretty much fell over my eyes. And I was carrying a shotgun that was at least half the size of that I was, if not more. And uh, I'm, I'm joking, because I felt, I felt kind of out of place. <laughs> but the tension is hard to describe. What was going, going on right across the street from us, there was a very angry mob of people. Rocks were thrown. It was scary, even for a young cop. I can't remember exactly, but I do remember standing with that shotgun and thinking that was all I had. And what am I going to do if that crowd starts surging across the street? They weren't that far away from us. And it was running through my mind that I had a choice. Either I shoot or I don't shoot. If I don't shoot and the crowd surges on top of us, somebody's going to get this shotgun. And I don't know what they're going to do with it. It was, uh, I felt very vulnerable at that moment and having to make a decision. Fortunately, I didn't have to make it. Very thankful I did not have to make a decision. Birmingham, Alabama is proud of its heritage. It is proud, its residents will tell you, of how far it's come on issues of race, of what it has become today. Stuck on the southwest tail of the Appalachian Mountains, it is a city born of industry and labor. It grew from nothing after the Civil War, a magic city, they called it. The only place in the world where all the ingredients to make steel, coal, limestone, iron ore, were readily accessible. Poor white laborers flocked to Birmingham, along with freed black slaves and the coal and steel barons who put them to work in foundries and mills and furnaces. By 1950, Birmingham was just about the same size as Atlanta, the Queen of the South. It was poised to take an important place in history. Instead, it became known as the hotbed for the Klan. It became known for bombings aimed at black leaders and citizens. It became especially known for its villainous police commissioner, Eugene Bull Connor, who pandered to segregationists with his armored tank, his segregated police force, and his divisive words. You can never whip these boys if you don't keep you and them separate. I found that out in Birmingham. You've got to keep the white and the black separate. Birmingham is proud of its civil rights heritage now. It calls itself the cradle of the movement, a place of revolution and reconciliation. But when Birmingham talks of that movement, it's most often the one recorded in black and white, in newsreels and newspaper images of the 60s, but not so much about what happened on that summer evening in 1979. Not so much about what happened in the sweltering days after Birmingham police officer George Sands approached the car Benita Carter was in, saw a movement, and without ever really seeing her, fired three bullets into her back. As young black women screamed, she was not the man he thought she was. As a white man screamed that she was. Nathaniel Bagley was Benita Carter's friend. He walked to Hayes High School with her. He sang with her in the church choir. He appreciated her enthusiastic alto voice to a point and enjoyed her company. 
like I said, I saw next, you know, in the same choir with her, and I've been knowing her, you know, for years because we went to attended the same church, but I also knew in the neighborhood too. So just from my personal perspective, you know, you know, she was mild mannered. She was a very friendly person, you know, got along with everybody. It wasn't radical, wasn't crazy types or none of that kind of stuff, but she was a, she was cool. He remembers learning of her death. It was emotional at the time. It was um, afternoon, and uh, we got word that uh, Benita had been shot at Jerry's convenience store. No one could believe that, you know, you hear stuff like that, uh, you know, so everybody wants to run up there and see what's, what's going on, trying to, trying to find out what had happened. And by this time, there was a crowd that started building, you know, and police was on the scene. Uh, a scene that would be in chaos for days, for weeks. There was so much anger, so much outrage, and that triggered even more outrage. I, I, I just put it like this. I remember there were cars with white men driving through the neighborhood, shooting the neighborhood. Now, now I can't say they were playing, but my guess is, you know, they were, they didn't look like me. They didn't look like us. Just talking about it takes its toll, still. I guess uh, because of the shooting that occurred at Jerry's store, uh, I witnessed cars driving down the street and people shooting. So, you know, it, it, was, it created a, a havoc, you know, for the entire neighborhood. And that lasted for, you know, a week or two. You know, it was just crazy because everybody was... Uh, all up in arms because of the death of Benita. Uh, because, you know, somebody who we knew who we are. Uh, uh, she was one of us. Excuse me. But uh, it was an uh, unfortunate incident. And still emotional for you, though. It is. It is. There's more after the break. You cannot understand America without understanding the South. It's the fastest growing, youngest, and most diverse part of the country. And Southerners are changing the music we listen to, the movies we watch, the food we eat, and the stories we share. I'm John Hammontree, host of The Reckon Interview, and each week I sit down and talk with some of the South's most interesting thinkers and creators. We talk about how this place shaped them and how they're reshaping the South. So go ahead and subscribe to The Reckon Interview, available wherever you get your podcasts. The emotion, the anger, was not just limited to the east side neighborhoods surrounding Jerry's convenience store where Benita Carter was killed. It spread across the city because black people throughout Birmingham knew police oppression, some intimately, some frighteningly. It spilled into the streets and filled them up. Crenshaw remembers it. There was historical anger cultivated over generations. But in that moment, Benita Carter was the lens that focused all that outrage, just a young lady with a 10-speed and a hat with zippers on the side and three bullet holes in the back. I think part of it was she was an innocent. You have a 20-year-old woman, girl, frankly, by 
by legal definitions, who had ridden here on her bicycle. She was not armed. She really should not have been involved. But as Crenshaw said earlier, it was bigger than that. Benita Carter would be the last straw. Birmingham City Councilman Richard Arrington, a black man, was a mild-mannered biologist and college professor. When Benita Carter was killed, he had spent eight years on the council speaking out against police brutality, speaking out publicly. Yeah, I, I was probably the first real voice in City Hall all about police behavior, misbehavior in, in the black community. It was very rampant. It always been. I grew up in Birmingham. We feared the police department. When I say we, I'm talking about the black uh, community. Uh, there were a lot of complaints about the police department. The police were given the tough job uh, of uh, enforcing all the segregation laws and keeping people in their places. And they were not especially well trained. And so the black community always had a difficult relationship with the police department. And they were some police officers, uh, just a handful of them maybe, but very brutal. And so we had very few good experiences uh, with, with the police department. Arrington had taken to calling cops out from council meetings, talking about the complaints against them and demanding punishment, though it rarely came. He had managed to push through what was perceived by some as a dramatic city council policy that finally required the police to take injured people to the emergency room before they were taken to jail. And uh, I became the darling of the black community because everybody in the black community knew about the problem that we had with police. So the night of the shooting, the mayor and police chief asked Arrington to go to Kingston to help quiet the crowd. It was that night that Arrington found out the name of the officer who shot Benita. He was already familiar with George Sands. There were certain officers arrest people and handcuff them and on their way to jail, stop somewhere and beat them crazy and then take them on to jail. And, and we had to get rid of that kind of be behavior. Then I, I realized that officers uh, didn't like seeing their names in the paper about negative things. So I kept you know, putting pressure on, on a lot of these guys until I, we got about 12 or so officers who were always being charged with misbehavior. And Do you remember any of those names? <laughs> yeah, I remember some of them, but Sands was one of them. The mayor of Birmingham in 1979 was a white man, David Van, who was long seen as a friend of black people, a progressive voice. He helped out Smart Bull Connor and his segregationist faction in the 1960s, pushing a new form of government, a mayor-council format, that stripped Connor of his power. Van, a lawyer, made great strides in establishing voter rights in the Jim Crow South. Van was clever and strategic, brilliant, some said, and decent. He was a man of great thoughts and great appetites. Meet Richard Mock, Van's campaign manager, as his boss sought re-election in 1979. Would you describe for people just David, his look, his, his, his attitude? David Van, well, you know, the mayor loved to eat, and the mayor was quite large. Um, when I worked for him, I would, I would keep four or five shirts in the car for him and four or five ties because when he ate, he dived into his food. And if you weren't careful, he would dive into your food. 
Fan, in many ways, owed his position to that bookish college professor, Dick Arrington. David had played a, a important role when the Young Men Business Club tried to change the form of government in order to get Connor and his kind out of office. Uh, David led that effort, and uh, he put together the whole plan for that and worked for it. So he was considered, uh, and he really was, he was considered moderate by his uh, certainly, most blacks thought he was moderate. Whites thought he was liberal, just too too liberal, you know. They oftentimes said they criticized David and said he can't be elected dog catcher in Birmingham, <laughs> and he ended up being elected mayor. But I mean, that that was what they said. But the shooting of Benita Carter drove a wedge in the friendship and in the trust the black community had in Van. Months before it happened, Arrington went to Van, imploring him to do something about Sands. Van said he would, but. Well, here's Arrington. I mean, the Sands thing is because David didn't do what he promised me. He promised me he was going to move Sands before this came up. Sands already had a dozen or so complaints against him. He was working out of the North Precinct. That's a black area. That's 90-plus percent black. And I would say to David, when we got an officer who works in an area like that and uses... Uh, undue force and things of that sort. Let's move him. Just move him over. Put him on the south side. I put him out east. Those are predominantly white areas then. It was after he left Kingston with police chief Bill Myers, after returning to City Hall, that he realized Sands was the man who shot Benita Carter. And he had told me about four or six months earlier that he was going to move Sands. He never did. And they caught up with him. When the night I, uh, Benita Carter was killed... I was home, and Bill Myers called me at home and said, I have a problem out at Kingston, and he didn't want to know if I would go out there with him. So I drove back to City Hall, got in the car with the chief, and went out to Kingston, where there was rioting going on and all of that. So we go out there and try to quiet the rioting down. We got just a SWAT team all out there trying to keep the rioters away from across the street. It's a whole whole mess. And we go back to City Hall and um, sitting talking with Van. Bill Myers and I talking with Van about the situation. And so I just said, you know, incidentally, who was the officer who did the shooting? And Myers said, Joy Sands. I said, oh my God, Joy. This was a guy Van was supposed to have moved. He didn't move him and now it's caught up with him. That's Sad story, but that's exactly what happened. Here's Richard Mock again. Uh, David was, you know, went to went to D.C. and was a, a law clerk of, of Hugo Black. I mean, he was just brilliant. And he came back home and was hired by Bradley Arant. And David was of the uh, opinion that uh, black people were people. Uh, they weren't second-class citizens. They deserved uh, to be protected under the Constitution. They had the right to earn a job. They had the right to live in decent housing. And David was of the ilk that, you know, we need to, this needs to change. And more and more things were changing. And it was a national wave. And, of course, we in the South are very resistant to change um, of any kind. Unless it's our kind of change. But what happened on that Friday night made Van's allies doubt him and forget the things he did in the past. 
There was fury over Van's failure to act. It seemed like just another whitewash, a betrayal. He hemmed and he hawed. People questioned him and their faith in him. It was clear that Van felt the heat of that summer from all sides. Black people, led by the SCLC's Reverend Woods, called for Sand's dismissal. The Fraternal Order of Police, a powerful force in local government, insisted Sands had followed policy and was just doing his job. Van was conflicted, for he believed Sands acted in the way he was trained, even if he'd been badly trained. That the officer truly thought the man who had been in a firefight at the convenience store was in the car and made a sudden movement that prompted him to shoot. Van was in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a re-election campaign. When SCLC National President Lowry met a march to City Hall, Van was determined to march with him, to show his support, to show who he was, even if it was just incredibly awkward. Mark, his campaign manager, had no idea what to expect. Were you, uh, so it's sort of legendary, I guess, that at one of the protests uh, that Mayor Van came down and marched with the protesters for a little while. How did that go? I was so scared. I was so very scared. Oh, God. I was, he called me, I was at the Third Avenue office, and he called me and said, I need you to come down here. And I was like, yes, sir. Uh, I want you to bring as many brochures as you can. And I had a big old box of them. And uh, there's going to be a march. And and I'm, and I'm going to meet them and walk with them, holding hands and singing. And I said, are you sure this is going to play well in Crestwood? And he says, I don't care. I'm going to show them that I'm still their friend. And he did. He went down. He walked down there. And, I, oh, my God, I was so scared. Uh, I didn't know what to expect. I, I thought maybe we might get hit, shot, kicked. Um but I went with him and watched him do it. I didn't join in. I was on the sidelines handing out brochures. <laughs> and how, how were both of you received? Fine. Every, we, knew, we, knew, we knew everybody. We knew everybody, and, and I think that they were pleased that we did it. Van marched the final stretch, actually singing along to We Shall Overcome. Black people wanted Sands fired, at least most did. They didn't push for him to be prosecuted, simply fired. White people, many of them, didn't want him punished at all. Van satisfied nobody. What he did was seen as dithering. He asked for an internal investigation from the Police Firearms Discharge Review Committee. But he also called for an ad hoc committee, a diverse committee of community leaders and clergy, to hold hearings about the shooting. That committee is the one that took all the testimony from witnesses that allows us to reenact the crime today. Van's appointment of that eight-member committee, four blacks, four whites, was sort of remarkable in Birmingham, almost radical. It was created, even if it would later seem ironic, as a way to reform the police department. Here's Arrington again. You have to remember, before the Bonita Carter thing, we had a case where uh, um, a young black fellow named Bugs Chambers, Willie Bugs Chambers. Uh, he was an informer for the police, but he was one of these guys who stayed in trouble all the time. And, but uh, 
And they killed, uh, one of the officers shot him. They went to his home and got him one night and took him out. And then they shot him out there. Well, David set up a hearing. He went in to say, well, under the Mail Council Act, you got subpoena powers. He set up a committee. He used the mayor's subpoena powers, gave an eight-member committee. We had a public hearing. That, you know, folk couldn't believe that could ever happen in Birmingham. But, I mean, he did that. And, of course, that became a part of his political undoing because that committee that he appointed would later on when the Benita Carter case uh, come up, you know, Voted against the action that uh, that he, well I say against the action he didn't take but that that's that's another story. The eight member committee was remarkable really. The group of civilian men and women, four white and four black, included a neighborhood president and a school superintendent. The Reverend Ed Gardner, a prominent civil rights figure, and Rabbi Milton Grafman, himself a progressive, but one of those clergymen Dr. King addressed and admonished in his letter from a Birmingham jail in 1963. The group took sworn testimony from subpoenaed witnesses and used it to recommend the officer's fate. For days, the committee heard from people like Tangie Rutledge, Ray Jenkins, Tina Daniels, and Wayne Crusoe. It even questioned young Milton Hubbard. He was only seven. While you were down at the store, did something happen? Yes. Can you tell me what happened? A shooting started. Were you in the store with your daddy? Yes. And what did you and your daddy do? Did you hide? Yes. I hid in the back of some potato chips. Daddy went in the back room. Dr. James Montgomery, a physician and member of the ad hoc committee, was the first black faculty member at UAB. He questioned the county medical examiner, Ronald Rivers, under oath, a powerful line of questions that prompted Rivers to finally acknowledge the three shots that killed Benita Carter could not have come through the back window of the Buick, as had been described by police. Dr. Montgomery hammered it home, raising questions that stayed with that committee and the community. She was in the front seat of the car. So the two things have to be put together where the assailant was and where the victim was. Where could she have been really and got shot in all these three positions without any bullets going through the seat other than the fact that she was getting up with her back toward the right window and the shots coming from the right window? Where else could she have been? If she was shot in the back, through the front window, how could she have been seen as a threat? The committee, seemingly designed to solve Van's problems, to make Birmingham a less racially divisive city, in essence did the opposite. As the testimonies emerged, as stories from eyewitnesses were told, Van's inaction became his defining action. Through it all, Sands remained on the force. Here's Crenshaw again, talking to John. Like you, I can't get into David Vance's head. I don't know. But it certainly looks, after 40 years, that he made a judgment of, well, two things. He may have honestly felt that the officer need to be given the benefit of the doubt because that was just the way things were and he didn't want to be, the, he didn't want to make him the example of all time. But at the same time, one cannot deny that politically it certainly looked to be, as you put it, the safer move for him to back Sands and not go after him. Which I'm sure only fed into the, to the anger and the belief that 
this was still Bull Connor's police department? Essentially, yeah. People believed, and I've heard some um, say even recently, that they believed that Van was going to make it right, that Van was, frankly, a white, poli a white politician who they could trust, that they had backed him, they helped get him elected, uh, he was friends with their council member, Richard Arrington. So they felt comfortable that he would do the right thing. The city waited days for testimony to conclude, for the committee to issue an opinion or a verdict or a suggestion, anything that would get Van off his seemingly immovable perch. Yes. <clears throat> well, um, good afternoon. It is um, my responsibility to share with you the findings of our report. After more than a week, the committee issued a summary of findings with the caveat that the committee had heard no testimony from Sands. It summarized its conclusions in a clear, succinct, and emphatic statement. And quote, the car was stopped. The driver was not in sight, then came up off the seat with the back toward Officer Sands. We can find no evidence that any threatening actions occurred from the car other than a person moving. Officer Sands shot Benita Carter. It was a brief and powerful summation, but what was the verdict, the conclusion, and what would Van do with it? The last question still lingers with people like Crenshaw. Well, as a preacher's kid, you, you like myself, you're familiar with the scripture, what profit is a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Uh, did David Van effectively lo politically lose his soul as a result of, of this? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, good time to you. It's good to see you all Sunday, always, always. For the committee's verdict, stay tuned to Unjustifiable, the story of Benita Carter. Next time, generations of police killings that led to Nita's death and to Black Lives Matter. Life can be so easy. Life can be so hard. Make you wanna cuss and fuss. Make you wanna tear things all apart. You try to stay calm and not act a fool. Now somebody come and make you lose your cool. Sometimes it's hard. It's hard to stay cool Sometimes it's hard It's hard to stay cool Sometimes it's hard It's hard to stay cool Unjustifiable is a podcast from Reckon Radio. It was written and created by me, John Archibald, and co-hosted by Roy S. Johnson. It was produced and edited by Alexander Ritchie, Additional production by Amy Yerkinen and Martha Oglesby. Our executive producer is John Hammontree. Our original theme music was written and performed by Thad Sajid, Austin Motlow, Danny Ray Wilkerson Jr., and David Marsh. Additional music by Jeremy Smith. 
We're grateful for the use of music by Sun Ra from the album The Magic City. Voice acting contributed by John Hammondtree, Barnett Wright, Nigel, and Shaquilla Thomas. Special thanks to Jim Baggett at the Birmingham Public Library, to Ramsey Archibald, R.L. Nave, Jonathan Soboleski, Kelly Scott, Uche Bean, Nathaniel Bagley, Dick Arrington, T.K. Thorne, Richard Mock, Bruce Wright, the City of Birmingham, Brian Burgard of Fatal Encounters, the friends and family of Benita Carter, the Birmingham News, Solomon Crenshaw, and all those people who have worked to make justice more equitable. Make you wanna tear things all apart. So you try to stay calm and not act a fool. Now somebody come and make you lose your cool. Sometimes it's hard, it's hard to stay cool.